Jude this morning. Please open your Bibles to the book of Jude. We'll be continuing to look at verses 5 through 10. Last time we looked at primarily 5 through 7, where we saw Jude gave us three citations, three examples, three illustrations that the readers would all know. And now today we will look at his point in using those as he compares the things people know about to the leaders of his day that are causing such great trouble in the church. And so before we look at that, let us remind ourselves of the passage. We'll read verses 3 through 16 of the book of Jude. So Jude, verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once knew it fully, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in a like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. They are hidden reefs at your love feasts. With, <clears throat> excuse me, with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom gloom and utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. 
These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we continue to look at the book of Jude and his warning about the false teachers that plagued the church in his day, and we apply it to the false teachers who have continued throughout all time, we ask, Lord, for wisdom to understand these things and for mercy in seeking those who have been lost. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, we looked at verses 5 through 7 in these three citations, these three illustrations that would have been known to his readers. We can call them three paradigms of Christ's judgment on, on the godless. They had all seen God's awesome power, received God's mercy, and yet they all turned from him. Uh, in verse 5, the Jews during their time of testing in the wilderness, they all died in their rebellion. God gave, they gave themselves over to fantasies about how good Egypt was and how horrible it was to serve the Lord. And they turned away from him. We see that in Exodus 16, verses 2 and 3. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to our full. And you have brought us out here in this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. And so they did not remember the horrible oppression they faced down in Egypt, the murder of their children in Egypt, their sons. They thought, oh, that is so much better than serving the Lord. And so they grumbled against him and they rebelled against him. They turned to immorality. You remember when they made the golden calf, they had a feast and a festival and committed gross sexual immorality in the name of the Lord. And so he was angry with them. And that whole generation died for their sin in the deserts. And it's called unbelief here. And then he goes on in verse 6 to talk about the rebellious angels being punished in hell. God had created them to serve him. He blessed them greatly, given them a position of high authority, established them in his heavenly host, his army, and yet they deserted. They left his army and went to fight on the other side. They rebelled against him, and thus they were punished, he says, in gloomy darkness, in chains, in prison, and ultimately cast into hell to be tormented forever. Then in verse 7, he goes on to talking about the sexual immorality of Sodom and Gomorrah and how that it was punished with everlasting fire. They had a great location, a bountiful land. They had wealth. They had comfort. Yet they turned to arrogance, indulgence, wickedness, immorality, and so rebelling against God. And they serve as an example to us by undergoing eternal fire. And then in verse 8, where we'll pick up today, he says, Yet in a like manner, these people, these people are the ones defined in verse 4, certain people who crept in unnoticed long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. These people, 
who we see in our passage are false teachers, rebels against God, teaching their own ideas and trying to supplant the faith of God with their own. Just as those wicked unbelievers and rebels of the past faced God's wrath, so these two, these certain people also face God's wrath because they crept in unnoticed, they pervert the grace of God, they deny Christ. And they will face God's wrath and curse as well. Now, we see here, he's making a comparison, but it's not a complete comparison. He's not saying they've done all the things exactly the same way. No, there's a comparison to the types of sins, the rebellion. And he's not saying they're just like them because, you know, they're not angels. Uh, They weren't in the Exodus. These are people who are in the Christian church. What he's intending to do here with this comparison is to indict them with the same kind of sins and the same severity of sins that these people before had. And so he says, these people also do these sins. And the key here is in verse 8, relying on their dreams. These people had given themselves over to their, their imaginations, to their dreams, to their visions, and replaced what God had said with what they had imagined. You know, we've all heard the jokes about some of these people today who, you know, I woke up in the middle of the night and God had revealed this to me. If I don't get a million dollars in donations by the end of the month, he will take me away. Give me your money. You know, we've heard these jokes. They're not funny. They're serious. Relying on their dreams seems to be the key problem that comes to the other problems that follow. It leads to the immorality, to the rebellion, the blasphemy, the contempt for God. Relying on their dreams. Source of their problems and ours. Now the word dreams here is only used one other time in the New Testament. And that's in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. Where it's quoting the Old Testament and saying that what you're seeing, the, the Holy Spirit had come down upon them and they were speaking in tongues and prophesying and there was great amazement as everybody saw this. They heard the word of God in their own language. They heard prophesying of, we read elsewhere, probably telling about the people and their sins, confronting them, things that only God knew. And Peter says, This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. That's the only other place these dreams are mentioned in the New Testament with the same word. And it's dreams brought about by the Holy Spirit. And its purpose was to tell people about about Christ to show the proof that these men were speaking the truth of God. Now, the power of the Holy Spirit is what's mentioned there, and we read in First Thessalonians not to not to suppress the Spirit or quench the Spirit. First Thessalonians five nineteen and twenty two. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. And so they were to be 
we are to be testing the spirits of these prophecies and seeing if they are indeed from God. And really any revelation from God is a prophecy. It is a prophetic utterance. That's what prophecy means. God shows you something in your, for you to give to the people. That's a prophecy, be it the writings of scriptures or the condemnation of somebody like Nathan to David. These dreams and visions were good, but they were to test them and abstain from all the evil. The evil here, I would expect, is the false prophecies. That's why you're testing them. The false acts of the spirit. You know, these dreams, these these visions, these spiritual insights that people seem to have. Oh, God has told me. God has revealed to me. This is his plan. This is the meaning, men will say. And yet, it doesn't seem to be from God. I would suggest there are three places these things come from. They come from the Holy Spirit as in Acts 2, as a special act of revelation of God for a purpose. They come from our own spirit, our own desires, our own wants. We dream of the things we want, and we dream of the things we fear. And we imagine rationalizations and justifications for what we desire. And then, of course, there's the third one, the satanic spirit. In Ephesians chapter 6, we read that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Earlier in chapter 2, he had talked about the spirit, this evil spirit, He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And so there is amongst the world the spirit of evil, the spirit of the devil, really, that is at work in the sons of disobedience and the unsaved. And there are those three sources of these dreams, these visions, or these, you know, revelations. I want to give you a a quick example. I was asked once why I went to the mission field, and I was a little embarrassed to admit it, because it's so easy for people to misinterpret. I had left the seminary, I wasn't ready to take my ordination exam, and I had, I think, $50 in the bank account and no job. So I got a job, and I thought, well, I'll continue my studies, and when I'm ready, you know, a year or two down the road, I'll enter the ministry. Ten years later, I'm riding on my new motorcycle out in the countryside of near Cincinnati, and I come around this bend in the road. It makes a hard right and a hard left, right angle in the middle of farm fields. And there's just a little rise in there. So I couldn't quite see the surface of the road, but I could have seen anything coming. And it's a 55 zone. I slow down to about 40 and make the corner. And the road crew had put these granite rocks, sharp edges like this big, filling the area off the side of the road where the cars were going because they dug a deep rut. And they were all over the road and I hit one of those. The front wheel popped up and I'm leaning the bike over turning, and when it came down, I wasn't able to maintain it, 
and I slid onto the bike, uh, did my impression of the opening credits of the wide world of sports. You remember that? Dun, 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 down the road. And as I'm leaning against my bike, trying to get my helmet off with my mangled hands, across the street, there's an abandoned church. The roof has fallen in. There are no windows. It's a stone building. And I look at that and go, oh, now, I was supposed to finish my studies and go into the ministry that you know people had helped me all along. The seminary doesn't charge the full cost. You know, it's all subsidized by the church. And I had really betrayed their expectations and hadn't entered the ministry. I took it as a sign from God that I had sinned and I was no better than this abandoned church. Now, tell you this long story why. Well, is this God speaking to me? Is this my being convicted by God's providence and coming to a conclusion of my own, which may or may not be right? Or is this the devil speaking to me? You know, people take things like that and they say, oh, it is from God. And my conclusion then that I must enter the ministry and finish the job that I started, the path that I started, is a vision from God. Uh, I would argue no. It is simply God's providence in which I was personally convicted by the Holy Spirit of my sin and changed my direction in life. It is not a vision of God. But that's what I want you to think about when you think about these things. Where did this come from? Where is this person's vision originating? And how do we know? Well, how do we know? I think we look to Scripture. It tells us how to know. God did not leave it to every man to determine what was true and what was not based on his heart. Uh, we know that if God is speaking through the Holy Spirit in prophecy, it would be a sin, a rebellion against him, to reject it. Yet on the other hand, we know that these people, these dreamers, who have visions and lead people astray, it would be a sin to follow them. How do we know the difference? Well, the Word gives us a few examples of how, a few instructions of how. In Deuteronomy 18, 20 and 22, he says, But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. In the theocratic kingdom where God was king, a false prophet in his kingdom was to be put to death. And now you may say in your heart, how may we know that the word of the Lord has not spoken? And God answers, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord and the word he does, the word does not come to pass or come true. That is the word the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. In other words, somebody who got it wrong, who said, this is what the Lord says is going to happen, and it doesn't happen, off with their head. They're a false prophet, an enemy of God's kingdom. Uh, an example of what we're talking about here, we see in Samuel when he anoints Saul. In 1 Samuel chapter 10, now we could go on and on, and I won't read it for time's sake. Samuel anoints Saul as king. He kisses him and tells him that the Lord has anointed him prophet over Israel. And then he goes on to say, And this shall be the sign to you 
that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. Now, Samuel is a prophet. He has told him, God told me to do this. This is God doing it. But then he goes on to say, this is a sign. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go from there further and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there. One carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying the skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. And after that, you shall come to Gibeah Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there you shall soon come to the city, and you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with the harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. And the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and turn, be turned into another man. Now then, these signs meet you. When these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do. God is proving that Samuel is a prophet and what he has said is true by giving a very, very detailed list of events that will happen so that Saul may know with absolute certainty God has spoken through the prophet. You know, prophets today will often give these very vague prophecies and then they'll debate whether or not they really came true or not. That's not how it works. God gave such specific, detailed information that you would know certainly that the God who is sovereign over all things did this. There can be no vagaries, no question. And so if what they say is going to happen, oh, God told me that Trump would be the next president. And Trump isn't president, false prophet, not a believer, not a Christian, never listen to them. Now, if they said, I think God would like Trump to be the next president, and I hope it comes true, and it doesn't, well, you know, that's normal. But if they say God has said, they're saying it's a prophecy of God, it doesn't come to pass, they're an enemy of Christ. According to the Old Testament, they would have been put to death. In the New Testament, they would be put out. Do not listen to such people. But you might say, well, what if all of their signs come to pass? Yeah. We read in Exodus chapter 7, the magicians of Egypt did the same thing by their secret arts that Moses had done. And so Pharaoh followed them instead of Moses' word. Well, God addresses this in Deuteronomy 13, the beginning of the chapter. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign and a wonder, and the sign of wonder, he says, comes to pass, and he says, let us go to other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments. But that prophet or dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God. And so the second one is if they teach against God. We would say if they teach against Scripture, 
And Isaiah says, you know, why do you inquire of mediums, uh, Isaiah 8, 19 through 20? Why do you inquire of mediums and necromancers who chirp and mutter? Should not a people inquire of their God? Should you inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? And this is what I want you to remember. To the teaching and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. If they do not speak according to scripture, that is really the test Moses was giving. If they speak against the God of the scripture by teaching against scripture, then they are not a prophet of God. If they're prophesying going after other gods, they're prophesying doctrine that contradicts scripture, then they are again a false prophet, an enemy. Their dreams and their visions are not true. They're just leading you astray. We have so many people today doing that, having dreams and visions and leading people to new doctrines that have never been in scripture. Doctrines that contradict the word of God. And we should understand that those visions are satanic. Now, the person who says, oh, God told me, we really need to reason with that person carefully. Are you saying that you're a prophet of God? Can you pass one of these two tests? Do a miracle like Jesus did. Or give us some prophecy of the future that comes exactly true, that's as detailed as what Samuel did. Then we know you're a true prophet. If you're not able to do that, then you're not a prophet of God. And this, this vision, this dream, is what's con being condemned by Jude. Whether it comes from your own heart or whether it comes from Satan, it's not from God. Don't think it is God. Men do, and they teach that it's God, and they follow it. And you have your revelation from God, and I have my revelation from God. And even though they're contradictory with, both with Scripture and both with each other, we're all happy. Well, don't be happy. As the false prophet was to be put to death, the one who insists that that's from God is to be ignored, to be put out. Now, you might get upset with me and say, oh, why are you telling me my vision is satanic? Well, I'm not necessarily. It could be your own heart. But you need to ask yourself, is God really speaking to me through this? Or is it my imagination and if God is speaking to me, then there would be proof. There would be evidence. God doesn't send out prophets and have them just randomly go speak to people and randomly introduce new doctrine. He never contradicts himself or his word, and he proves his prophets by his mighty power, by his miraculous power. Um, don't trust it, test it, would be my recommendation to you. Test all these things so that you may know what is true and what is right. There, Jude's condemnation of these people in his day is the same condemnation the church needs to have today. Don't ever listen to a false prophet. If they've proven themselves false even once. God doesn't say if they have you know, better than 50% success rate in their prophecies, you should listen to them, they're from God. No, if they're ever wrong once, they're a false prophet, they're done. You don't listen to them. They have spoken corruptly. We are to test everything as we just read. He goes on to say that it's because of these dreams or through these dreams that they do these sins. They defile the flesh. Now both the Israelites in the Exodus and the cities on the plains, Sodom and Gomorrah and the others, they fell into this problem. And it comes in a number of forms. Certainly we understand hedonism. 
the giving over to sexual pleasures and physical pleasures and the desires of the flesh is a big one. Paul talks about in Second uh, Timothy chapter 3. He says, Understand this, that in the last days will come times of difficulty for the people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal and not loving, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. Boy, he's pretty harsh and pretty long, but that's what Jude is talking about. They're giving themselves over to the their defilement by the flesh. They're following the error we saw in the people of Israel. They were concerned about once, food and water, given a chance to break loose the parties and sexual immorality. Uh, hedonism, if we want to put a Greek name on it. And we're told to avoid such people. They are not doing what is right with God. They are turning away from God and rebelling against God. He goes on in verse 6 to say something we, we've heard here. For among them are those who creep into households. You know, they come in unknown, these, those people in verse 4 we read of Jude. Uh, they creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins, led astray by various passions, always learning but never able to arrive at knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men opposed the truth, men corrupt in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. You know, Paul is equally harsh with Jude in explaining that these people are not part of the church. They may appear that way. They may appear to have some form of godliness, but there's no, no evidence of its power in their life, and their teaching just leads people astray and corrupts them. Of course, it's not just that side of giving in to all the pleasures of sin. There's also the other side, the asceticism. The, that's been a false form of holiness throughout history. And Paul speaks about this in Colossians explicitly, chapter 2, verse 18 and follow, following. Remember the passage, he said, Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going into detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. So interestingly, asceticism, the, the harsh treatment of the body, is really not is still the corrupting of the body, the defiling of the flesh. Because they do not hold fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows, and that growth is from God. The body here is, of course, the body of Christ, the church. So he says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why are you still alive to the world? Why do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring all to things that perish as they are used. And according to human precepts and teachings. They have the appearance of wisdom, promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body but they have no value 
in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And so, you know, on the one hand, the giving in to all the pleasures, and the other hand, denying comfort. These are the defilements of the flesh that Judas is condemning, that these false prophets teach. Oh, if you want to be truly holy, take a vow of poverty and suffer. Oh, God wants you to be happy, so do what makes you happy. You know, two sides really of the same coin of the flesh. We should lead a godly life in Christ Jesus, not a fleshly life. We read about this in Peter when we were going through Peter before, First Peter 4. In the first five verses, he says, Since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Are they teaching us to give in to our passions, to deny our passions, or are they teaching us to live for the will of God? One of the tests of these false prophets and teachers, where are they going? Do they want you to be happy? Do they want you to deny yourself and suffer? Or do they want you to glorify God? Really, look at the scriptures. Look at their teachings and their talkings and their visions and their dreams. He then goes on to say that they, through their dreams and visions, they reject authority. Or the word there could even be translated, they frustrate authority. We know the type of person we're talking about. One, right, the one who doesn't allow any authority over them. If somebody's over them, even if they're doing good for them, they feel a need to rebel. They feel a need to frustrate them, to thwart their plans and their projects and their, their authority. Uh, what authority am I talking about? Well, we just covered that in First Peter, didn't we? First Peter 2.13, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Chapter 2, verse 18, Servants, be subject to your masters in all respects, not only to the good and gentle, but to the unjust. Likewise, Peter, 1 Peter 3.1, Wives, be subject to your own husbands. 1 Peter 5.5, 5, younger be subject to elders. You know, in the Exodus, we call the unbelief of the people unbelief. That's why they rebelled. That's why they rejected God, because they did not believe him. They did not trust him. But the teachers, the leaders in that day, they were rebelling against God openly. They were saying, God's authority, Moses' authority, this is not what we desire, not what we want. We want our authority. And so they rebelled against Moses. Just as in Peter, he reminds us of all those things we are to be subjected to because there is authority over us. That authority comes from God. And so pride, arrogance, these things lead to this rebellion that we see they reject authorities when we see that in a teacher. And we see that often, you know, teachers who they find fault with every other teacher. Oh, you like this author or this preacher. Well, did you know they have this problem and this problem? Or they did this in their life? Or we find this fault in their theology. And they say, therefore, you know, you don't need to accept them as, as an authority. You, you should listen to me. Uh, but... Who is there who is good? 
Who is there who is right in their theology at every point? Who's perfect except Christ? You know, we don't reject authority just because they have problems. We all have these problems. We honestly look at and understand people and try to see, you know, where, the, where they're right, where they're wrong. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. He doesn't say, follow me as I am the Pope or I am the Lord. He says, follow me the way I follow Christ, as I'm following Christ. Where he was wrong, he didn't expect you to follow him. And he had his own struggles with sin, which he admits in Scripture. Covetousness, apparently, was his big sin problem. The demon in his life that he never defeated until he went to be with the Lord. So anyway, these men, they find excuses to rebel against any authority, to reject any authority, to thwart any authority except their own. And that is a dead giveaway when somebody is outside of the Lord. Yes, we should, like the Brians, examine all things and note what's wrong and try to deal with what's wrong. But if you reject everybody's authority who has anything wrong with them, there will be no authority in your life except yourself. And that's his point. And he goes on to say, they blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, in chapter 2 of Second Peter, we have a parallel passage to this. He said, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Uh, we understand this to mean they, they blaspheme angels. Now, you might think blaspheme, angels. I thought blasphemy was for God. Well, the, the word blasphemy uh, comes from a transliteration of a Greek word, but the Greek word has a little broader meaning than we might understand. The meaning of the word in Greek can be to speak lightly or amiss of sacred things, to slander and so they may have despised and mocked the angels, which were created higher than man, and served God directly and will punish the wicked. And it's the, the angels who will gather them up and cast them into hell. Uh, and they may have despised them and arrogantly spoke about them. Or, um, well, the details are not given, but there's certainly plenty. They might have been disgusted by the angel worship of the day, but more likely, they were leaders who had these visions and dreams and explained to you, God has shown me the armies and the hierarchy. <coughs> and we have the archangels and this and we have this and we have this and these are here and those are there and these are better than these. You know, that, that kind of teaching was going on in their day. But these were fantasies. They were made up by men. And Jude wants us to understand that. Uh, Jude, Jude gives us an example. The archangel Michael, Michael contending with the devil about the body of Moses. Uh, where does it say that in the Bible? Well, it doesn't. Some people think it's referring to the lost ending of the Testament of Moses or possibly another book called The Assumption of Moses. These are in the pseudepigrapha, the false writings. Somebody claiming to be Moses wrote these things. Uh, it, it's possible that he's using that, but it's also possible that he's using a, a tradition of, of what had happened 
and that so is the Testament of Moses, so is Jude, so is Peter. They're all referring to uh, similar truths. We do see a model of this in Zechariah chapter 3, where the prophet Zechariah sees Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse them. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Referring to the high priest. And so, now is he quoting this pseudepigrapha or is the pseudepigrapha quoting a tradition that was correct and true? I'm going to go with the second. And because Jude is scripture and Jude would know through the Holy Spirit what was right and what was not. Uh, He's using a commonly known story, though, to show them their error, just as Paul does in Acts 17. You remember, he says, you know, as some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we shouldn't think the divine being to be like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So he's explicitly telling them, your prophet says something that is true, and if that, and since that is true, why do you have this error? And Jude may be saying something along the same lines. But Jude's readers would have understood what he was pointing out to them. Not the theology of the book of uh, the, law, the lost ending, meaning an ending we no longer have, of the Testament of Moses, but he's teaching them that these people were arrogant. They were scornful. They were scoffers. They did not respect authority. They did not honor authority. They mocked. They scorned. Uh, Proverbs 22.10 says, Drive out a scorner, and strife will go out, and quarreling and abuse will cease. I think that's really what Jude's point is in using these passages as examples, showing these people scoffed. They mocked God. They rebelled against him. So these false teachers in their teaching rebel against God and despise his authority. And therefore, they should be put out so that the strife will end and the trouble will end. In verse 10, he goes on to say that these people blaspheme all they do not understand. Peter says in the parallel passage, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant. Now, what are we talking about? Well, perhaps what Paul's talking about in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 and following. He says, as I urged you, Timothy, when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge certain people not to teach any different doctrine. So there, there were false teachers there who were teaching different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. And so the big problem becomes the speculations, which is problem Jude is dealing with. He calls it their visions and their dreams. Their speculations. Well, Paul says the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, 
desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things of which they make confident assertions. And I think that goes well with what Jude is saying. They don't understand what they're talking about. They, They want to be teachers, but they're teaching things they don't understand, and they're speaking nonsense. It doesn't even make sense. Uh, What are they speaking of? What are they blaspheming here? Blaspheming all they don't understand? Well, the law, angels, and the gospel. We see that back in in the beginning of the chapter of Jude, that they're perverting the grace of God. Whatever is great, too great for them, too complicated for them, or too spiritual for them, they're blaspheming. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.14. Natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. These people are not believers. He has called them. He has condemned them. They are not part of the Christian faith. They are in the Christian church. They are trying to be leaders and teachers in the Christian church. But they are not believers. And because they are not believers, they cannot understand the spiritual things. And so whenever they handle the spiritual things, what ends up happening is they make a mess of it. They don't understand what they're talking about. You know, like unreasoning animals. They just make a mess and destroy it. Or they rage against it or they teach around it. Or they teach people to forsake it because they can't understand the things of God. Now, these things that they're having, that they do understand, the things that are appealing to them are the things of the flesh, the things of this world. That's what they dream about and rationalize, justify, and sanctify sin because the things of God are unknown. These certain people, these false teachers, these false prophets, these wicked leaders, they're turning people away from God to the things that God says he hates because they do not know these things. Now, if we want to draw near to God, if we want to experience the blessing of being with God in this life, the experience of having him with us and blessing our life, we need to be careful to draw near to him in the way he says, to know the things of the scripture, to do the things of the scripture, to believe him. And these certain people, these false teachers, are really leading us away from him. And people think, oh, it's harmless. Oh, it's okay. Oh, they're still talking about the Bible, so it's good enough. No, if it's leading us away from God, which is what the Bible is telling us they do, then it is going to destroy us. We must test these things that they're teaching. Yes, nobody can perfectly pass the test of Scripture. And there are things that we don't all understand, and we will disagree like we do in eschatology. But are they teaching for scripture against it? Are they teaching spiritual understanding? Or are they teaching the flesh? You know, it should be obvious. Are there visions in their dreams that they go on about from God? Proven? If not, we have no place with them. Now, it's a harsh message. It makes people angry. But think about the cost. You're turning yourself away from God when you allow these people to pollute you. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we have your word. And in your word, we have a standard of truth and of practice. 
<coughs> a standard that tells us what pleases you, what glorifies you, what draws us near to you, and a standard which tells us what things to be wary of. And we thank you, Lord, that the message is hard and harsh. We thank you for Jude spelling out to us the dangers of these false teachers, the condemnation that awaits them, the judgments, like the judgment on the people of Israel in the desert who died for their unbelief and the angels who were thrown into prison waiting hell and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah burned with eternal fire. We know those things await them and that we should not follow them, not even one step down their road. And we ask for strength and wisdom to rejoice and to fellowship in the truth and with your people. And we know that the distinctions are sometimes hard to make, so we ask for your grace and wisdom to be right. In Christ's name, amen.